This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with David Darling. Maverick cellist is the phrase most often assigned to Grammy-winning artist David Darling, a man who literally redefines the way the cello is played and the way music is taught. His eclectic recordings, innovative performance style, and unconventional teaching methods have helped open the world of music and improvisation to thousands of individuals. With Sounds True, David has released a new record, along with vocalist Sylvia Nakash, In Love and Longing. He's also collaborated on a three-CD set with Coleman Barks, Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship, a combination of music by David Darling and the poetry of Rumi, translated and spoken by Coleman Barks. David Darling is also collaborating with pianist Jacqueline Bouillon to release a new record in the early summer called Cello and Piano Meditations. And David, along with Jacqueline, will be at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival, August 20th through the 24th, 2014, in Estes Park, Colorado. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David and I spoke about the cello as an instrument of melancholy. We also talked about what it takes to be a good collaborator and the art of deep listening. And finally, we listened to three selections of David's music from his releases with Sounds True. Here's my conversation with David Darling. David, I want to start with a question that's intimate in a certain kind of way, which is I'm wondering if you could share with me and with our listeners, what's it like on the inside when you're playing the cello? What does it feel like to you? Well, the cello's always had a a feeling of uh, romanticism and, uh, and of longing and tremendous emotion. So I feel all those things in myself and when I start playing they're, they're, the cello itself, the sound, you know, I, I fell in love with, love with it when I was a kid and uh, uh, I started and uh, the more I played it, the more I loved that the fact that it was uh, in a way so emotional and such a sound that, uh, that I loved because it, was, it felt so uh, expressive. And so, as I've gotten older, I mean, I it's even deeper in me. And you know, I could I could easily say that it's one of the great spiritual adventures of my life. And that, you know, when you people talk about God and stuff like that, my answer is 
that you know it's always that music is the god and and the cello is the is the uh, path through which uh, I cer- certainly love expressing myself and so <clears throat> um, something like that as a young person, tell me how you fell in love with the cello. Well, I was very privileged to grow up in a lower middle class family where my mother was a highly respected pianist and uh, my father was a businessman, but he loved classical music uh, to such an extent that he was president of the local symphony board. And uh, in our house, my brother and sister, my brother and sister, we we all were listening to classical music all the time because that's what my father and my mom wanted to listen to. So it was part of the sound in our house for all the time I was growing up. And then I feel, I, I remember going to uh, the symphony concerts, and I always liked seeing the cello, even though in the beginning I didn't really realize how expressive it was. I sort of liked it for its size and and being uh, an athlete as well. I liked the idea that you got to carry around this this sized instrument. And then in my grade school, when they introduced instruments to us in fourth grade, when the cello was demonstrated, I just immediately knew that I wanted to play that. So. As I went home after school, I told my mother, I want to play the cello, and she was just tickled pink. She loved the fact that I wanted to do that, and then we got a cello right away, and then I had a private teacher right away, and um, and that, so I've been playing ever since. And my mother accompanied me in uh, grade school, high school, at all the contests. She was quite a well-known uh, accompanist in Elkhart, Indiana, where I grew up. And she, she, she was a terrific accompanist because if students made mistakes, she could always cover for them or know where they were at. She, and so I, she was my accompanist all through high school. And I remember the first time that I was playing my first song, I think it was called the Voga Boatman song. And I was learning that by myself, and she came in. She said, David, let me play the accompaniment to that. I said, okay. And then, wow, when she played the piano and played all those chords and I played the cello, it just killed me. It was so beautiful to play with piano accompaniment. You know, it just was a a moment of kind of miracle. I realized, wow, this is this is fantastic to have piano accompaniment to the cello and one of the favorite memories I have of early uh, listening when I was a kid to professional cellist play or artist play was getting a recording of Leonard Rose Uh, at that time he was one of the most famous solo cellists and he taught at Juilliard and the record I got had something on it called Shlomo which is one of the great rhapsodies that's ever been written by Ernest Bloch, and all cellists love it because it's one of the great expressive uh, 
pieces that has ever been written for the cello, and of course it's called Rhapsody as well. So when I heard that, I was just uh, even more in love with the cello, the fact that the, that piece was so uh, beautiful, so emotional. And of course, Ernest Bloch was Jewish, so um, in a way, Shlomo's always been uh, a, a music that has been played in uh, the synagogues because it it has such a, a plain uh, melody that's so uh, sad and at the same time so uh, uh, rhapsodic and beautiful. So, you know, by that time I was in fifth grade, sixth grade, and I just we I got the music and was able to start learning how to play that along with all the other great concertos that students learn, like the Saint-Saëns cello concerto. And then, of course, starting the Bach uh, unaccompanied uh, suites, which was just a pleasure because my mother would play Bach in the house, and I always just thought Bach was wonderful. And so to get to uh, to play the Bach unaccompanied suites was fantastic. And, you know, the more I learned about it, I realized that a man named Pablo Casals had discovered them when he was very young, and if it hadn't been for him, well, he he discovered that Bach had wrote wrote those six suites, which are very famous, and he he found them in an old in an early music store in the late 1800s, and and couldn't believe that Bach that nobody knew about it, so he made them famous because he recorded all of them. So I don't know the the influence of classical music was really huge in my life, and of course it still is. I I, uh, I feel like the classical music was my first love of music. Now, David, I think of the cello as the instrument for grieving, if you will, the instrument of melancholy, the instrument to sort of carry human emotion, especially the emotion of letting go and loss. And I'm curious if that's your experience or talk a little bit for you about the cello and this idea of the it being an instrument for the release of melancholy. Well, I would totally agree with you. I mean, I didn't know, know you know, I didn't think about myself when I was a kid, but as I got grew older and older, I realized the reason I loved the cello was the melancholy that it it gave. And and as I grew older and I began to realize that the world was full of horrific things, you know, I learned about the Holocaust and other things, and and the and the cello was just fantastic because you could put your emotion, your feelings in it, and express. Uh, uh, express your feelings through the cello, and it was just a, such a gift to play the cello because of what you just said. It, it had this melancholy sound, and uh, and people people loved the cello. You know, the more people I met, the more I realized that cello was very, a very favorite instrument of a lot of people. You know, much more than the other string instruments like violin and viola. Cello is one of those instruments that 
as I meet have met people in my life, it's not untypical that people say to me, "Oh, that's my favorite instrument." You know. So I think it's remarkable that an instrument can can have such a depth of feel because of the sound. You know, the sound is in a range of the our voice, our human voice. It's it's like a baritone tenor. It's very much in the speaking. Uh, uh, sound as well, uh, and it's so human-like that someone's talking to you rather than the violin, which is so high. You know, you don't speak in that voice. But the cello and the, even the viola, they they're sort of in our the human uh, sound that we make when we're talking. So that was uh, a, a wonderful thing to discover and to realize that it had such. Uh, feeling it. And I realized that, you know, when I would uh, accompany a, a wedding or whatever, that people wanted it because it was emotional. You you could try to play something happy, and of course you could play happy music, but the, the melancholy was always there in a way. So I think what you feel is some is something that a lot of us feel about the cello. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that it's on the same wavelength, broadly speaking, as the human voice, because it seems somehow connected to our hearts, the heart then expressing itself through the human voice in a certain kind of way. You know, it's uh, quite amazing. I mean, in my teaching workshops and things, I, I, I tell everybody they can play the cello, and so they come up one by one, and I give them the cello, and they begin to realize that the the top of the cello is resting right on your chest where your heart is. And uh, then your knees are holding the instrument. So there's actually a, a circular vibration that's going through the cello and down through your uh, to your knees. And so there's this vibration that you, I mean, it's amazing that you almost are hugging the cello is one of the few instruments that the player encompasses the whole instrument. It's like hugging someone. And, you know, I, when I, the more I played the cello, the more I realized that because the cello was against my chest, the sound was going into my chest near my heart. And also the ear, your ears are very close to the pegs that are tuned the cello. And many times the peg is also on your neck or maybe on the lower part of your head. So you feel this vibration because it's such an instrument that you're so intimate with in a way. And, you know, I've realized that the older I have gotten with the instrument that that was just remarkable, that it it was within your body and... uh, you were hugging it all the time. Mm. In just a moment, I want to play a track from a record called In Love and Longing that you've created along with Sylvia Nakash. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this collaboration with Sylvia Nakash in creating this record. Well, I met Sylvia some years ago because um, I was invited to teach at... Uh, a very progressive 
school in San Francisco, and she was part of the faculty. And and when I met her, I I, I began to understand that she was an expert with uh, uh, ragas and Indian music, and she could and she when she taught, she could teach. Indian music, and by that time when I met her, which was not that long ago, I had already had a lot of experience with discovering Indian music and sort of uh, starting to imitate it on my cello, because you can bend the notes on the cello like you can with a sitar. And, you know, it was amazing to realize that in Indian music, there, there's nothing that's in squares. Everything is part of a glissando or sliding around. All the notes are bent. And of course, when I, when I discovered that you play an oraga, which is, is a series of different notes, but there were no chord changes like they have in Western music. And I just thought that was incredible that that, that you just play over a drone. And so I was just blown blown away by the fact that there was such a thing as the Indian style and uh, <clears throat> and uh, I was able to imitate it on the cello very well. And in meeting Sylvia, who was a master of singing Indian music, and she, she was studying Indian music in San Rafael, and then we shared the teaching. You know, she would teach her... 20 minutes and I would teach and then uh, the, the students are, uh, really enjoyed both of us teaching because even though we're kind of we were both um, interested in the spirituality of music and the sound more than anything else because music you know can be defined as just sound and vibration it doesn't have to be so so much you know what classical music is, which is defined by right and wrong notes. And you know many people who, who try to play classical music, what drives them nuts is they don't want to make mistakes. And of course, Indian music is very exact, but but the fact that you slide around and and every slide has more a lot of emotion in it, and it's over a drone, so. You slide your notes so that finally you're in a unison or you're in a perfect fifth or perfect fourth, and then you shake the note. And in hearing her teach ragas to the class and then hear her voice sing in a masterful way was just just wonderful for me. And so we continued doing that for about six years. I sort of stopped doing it a year ago because I wanted to take a rest from it. But that's how we met. And then we always talked about, let's do a record together. And so we finally made the time and we started creating it. Uh, we did some in San Francisco. Then she, she was teaching out here in the East, and she came to, to my house and worked in my studio, and we did some pieces here. And also the pianist on the record, Kit Walker, who's a, just a a genius piano player. He's a great jazz player, but he's so melodic when he plays, and he was with us, so it was just incredible to have him offer his piano.
piano stylings to whatever tunes we were working on. And what I like about the record is that it's such a, in a way, a variation of what you might call modern ethnic music, which is, I feel like the record has some African feel. I think it has definitely has Indian feel. And then just Western westernized kind of uh, mellow jazz uh, changes and stuff. But I was just a huge fan of Sylvia, and I'm really glad that we decided to do that. But And I must say in, also that she's the one that I would say is really responsible for it getting done because uh, towards the end of, of recording, I got sick and couldn't re- participate very much, and she was her very strong self and really finished the the mixes and stuff like that while I was not available. So she deserves a lot of credit for the CD. We'll listen to the track now, Awakening, from the record In Love and Longing, Sylvia Nakash and David Darling.
David, I think of you as a really brilliant collaborator. You collaborate with so many other artists, musicians, spoken word artists, performers. And I'm curious to know, what do you think makes a good collaborator? Well, I think it's uh, uh, some kind of uh, recognition that music is uh, one of the if not the most profound entities in this consciousness. And when you have, for instance, with Coleman Barks, the poet, he also, even though it's not, he's not, he's doing spoken word, his voice and and his love for music is a, it makes the collaboration like it would be like with three musicians, like we just heard, uh, where it's, for instance, it has nothing to do with commerciality. It has to do with, uh, I think, you know, I like the idea that music like what we just heard is uh, from the infinite. It's not from the finite. You know, finite music usually has a melody and a title that reflects the melody. But infinite music, you know, is unprogrammed music. Which of course, when I grew up, I st- I began listening to that, you know, because most classical music does not have a, a materialistic title. It's just allegro or largo, and then then the music, the the vibration of the music and the emotion in it, you know, it just always killed me 
learning those, that music. And then as I started joining groups, I realized that musicians in general really love what they're doing, and they they get really inspired by other musicians. And so I think it's, uh, for me, it was quite easy in a way to play with other people and create with other people and, and even accompany dance and stuff like that because I loved all of the arts. And I, it was always amazing to to uh, do improvisations that had a lot to do with improvisation rather than reading music. A lot of my, there's some of my music that has some thorough composed things, but a lot of the music, like what we just heard, that's largely improvised. I mean, there's a loose form maybe around a few changes, but basically what we did was deep listening to each other and also giving space to each other. You know, one of the great uh, qualities of making music is to realize how important silence is, that, that you don't play all the time, but that you give space to the other musicians. You stay out of their way, and then, and and it's a conversation also. You re, you really listening and answering what people do, and and in in the case of improvisation, it's you don't know what people are going to do. So one has you have to be right there. If you're not present, you know, if you're not really listening, then it probably won't work. But most of us uh, musicians, most musicians who really communicate with people they're deep deep listeners i mean i always thought that when you started playing music that you started soaring you weren't really on planet earth anymore you were in this other plane floating <clears throat> in the cosmos or or in that infinity and and it was so uh, inspiring to be in that place for a while and then of course you come back to to the planet and all the stuff we have to deal with, but the music just gives the human uh, being a, a chance to soar in a different way, in a more mysterious place, and to ha have their emotions be directly connected to sounds, and, and various sounds you know, have certain uh, emotional content and uh, most musicians uh, really realize that they 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 really know the difference between minor and major and complicated other kinds of things that that they use, but not in such an intellectual way, but rather in an uh, emotional feeling way. So the collaborations that I've been lucky to have, you know, starting with. When I was asked to join the Winter Concert, the Paul Winter Concert, uh, the, that group represented every all kinds of styles, including classical, Brazilian, African, and it was. And I I just couldn't believe I was in a group like that because it fit sort of all of the yearnings I had to had in feeling how much I loved ethnic music. And then to be in a group where, from time to time, somebody from Wesleyan University here in Connecticut would join us for some concerts, and you know we would sit with the 
Indian musician and learn learn things from him so or her and uh, that's that was just unbelievably beautiful to me to, to have a to get to do that in a group and of course also it was wonderful that Paul was such a environmentalist and and person interested in saving endangered species and all of that so I think uh, my mother was a great collaborator and I think I must have gotten some of her qualities because uh, I like accompanying people I don't necessarily have to be a star I mean I love for instance I learned how to play jazz bass and I just love playing bass and you you don't necessarily solo all the time but you're you're giving a texture and a sound to the group and you're holding it together with your sound of your bass and of course in classical music the cello is always playing the inner harmonies and sometimes the basic tonics and it feels always when I played in chamber music and orchestra that the cello was well, orchestrations, you know, had such an interplay between all of the instruments, and nothing could sound very good unless everybody was doing their part well. So one learns that in, when structured music, but when I fell in love with jazz, I realized that musicians, you know, they didn't sometimes have any music, and they, they just expressed themselves. And that, for me, that was like an amazing idea that there was, music that was free or it was based on the Indian drone and, and ragas in which you had a lot of freedom to uh, interpret uh, in a freer way uh, what you wanted to play. Paul Winter used to say to the audience, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to turn all the lights out in the auditorium so you can hear the music more clear, clearly and I invite you to lose your mind and come to your senses. <laughs> and so that was a free piece. We we musicians couldn't even see each other, but we listened like mad, and there was this interplay, and it was just a fabulous experience. And another, another uh, pillar of learning in my experience in music that... that very sensitive musicians who really deeply listen to each other can make wonderful, wonderful music together. I'm curious to know a little bit more, David, about how you listen. How do you do it? And I say that because I'm around lots of people who don't seem to be listening very well to others. And then I meet certain people like yourself who seem to somehow have the space to really open and receive other people. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit about what your internal experience is, how you listen. Well, I think some of it comes from my family. My father was a, a good listener, and he, was, he taught us, or we learned by example, that he was extremely interested in other human beings. If I brought a colleague home to my house, I'd always tell them, now you're going to have to uh, sit and talk to my father because he, he's going to want to know everything about you. And so I witnessed my father 
being very interested in who the person was and whether he knew their parents and all of that stuff. Not in kind of an examining way, but out of just out of curiosity or interest in human beings. And I, I think that I grew up feeling almost the same way, that I, I, I loved to ask people questions and see what they had to say or what, who, what nationality they were and all of that. So there was always a natural curiosity for me to, to get to know people in a, in a more intimate way. And in uh, music, of course, it's just uh, remarkable that there's such an art form where you interact with other people, and you know it's a it's answering a question. You know, people will play something, and it's either a statement or a question, and then you answer it, or you you know that you have when you're an experienced musician, you know that you're doing something that you might call counterpoint and you know that you can play together for a while. I mean, the greatest example of that is in Dixieland uh, music, but this this sense of, of interplay or point-counterpoint is such a, a delicious way to, to, uh, to relate to other musicians. And same thing with dance. I, I loved... The first time I was asked to <clears throat> accompany dance, and it was never classical classes; it was always uh, modern dance. And I just loved the fact that all I had to do was watch the dancer and make up something that that they could dance to. I just well, that's just fantastic. And during that time, I you know I I met other major figures like. Alvin Nikolai and Murray Lewis, they invited me to create some music for them. And they just sat at a table and they'd give me a tempo. They say, this, the piece we want has this tempo. And so just keep it in that tempo, but let's see what you make up. So I had so much encouragement in the, in a way, in my growing years from many people who were freer with what they thought music was. It wasn't just so much in a box. It was very free, and uh, and it fit me to a T because I, I had pr- trouble practicing sometimes because I wanted to do it my way, and that's when I realized that I was a composer, that I really liked making up my own music and well, you know, and I'm of the opinion that that everybody is a composer, and if it, if we didn't have such a structured school and we had more time for children to uh, to be freer, and that school gave them time to be freer, and also encouraged them to to think of themselves as composers and artists, you know, I, I just cannot believe that that spirit isn't in every human that's born. Because you see it in babies. I mean, babies are so creative, they do things their own way. But when people start to go to school, you know, there's so much structure and teachers, you know, saying negative things to children, you know. Or fathers that are naive, you know, or mothers who tell their son or daughter, well, I can't carry a tune, so I'm sure you can't either. You know, that kind of naive uh, sense of... of, uh, 
uh, <laughs> the adults relating to the uh, other people. David, I want to play now a track from the collaboration between you and Coleman Barks, published with Sounds True, the record called Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. And you mentioned your work with Coleman Barks earlier, and I wonder if you can introduce for us, before we listen to this track, we're going to hear Entering the Shell, but if you can introduce for us a little bit the background about the creation of this record. Well, I met Coleman quite a few years ago at the Omega Institute where he was speaking and also a friend of mine, a ecstatic dancer, a Katak dancer named Zuleika. And I was introduced to him and then he right away said, you know, I, I always like to have music with poetry. And Rumi uh, never did his poems or poetry without music and many times also with dance. So he he loves that tradition and he's very friendly to the musicians who play for him if in fact they they play in such a way that he likes it. So in in starting to play for him uh, many years ago he he liked it and then we started doing some shows together and then Bill Moyers invited Coleman to be on his interview show and you know, that's uh, millions of people listen to that. And so the people who didn't know Coleman Barks, they heard him on this program and they just thought, everybody thinks Coleman is unbelievable when you hear him because he has a very beautiful, low voice and it's always relaxed and uh, he's an extremely articulate person and there's some something about him that's almost like uh, he's your best friend or he's fatherly or something and and he's also always has a sense of humor you get that this guy is very gentle and he likes humor and he likes people and he he's always uh, blowing his own mind because the stanzas or one line of Rumi will will just knock him out when he's doing it and he'll he'll stop and he'll say, Isn't you know, to the audience he'll say, Isn't that amazing? And read the line again. So I just uh was in love with uh what he did and then we had some very long tours after the Bill Moyer show where we as a band we had uh, the the wonderful Glenn Velez, probably one of the world's greatest percussionists and Zuleika doing Katak and myself as a cellist, and we did tours together. And and we some, we've been doing that some, uh, almost every year in San Francisco. But that tour solidified a lot of, lot of relationships between the three of us and, and Coleman. And then Coleman started asking me to do duets with him because sometimes the, the budget for some people didn't couldn't afford so many people, so I was lucky enough to be asked by him as a, to accompany him as a duet partner. So we we grew and grew together, and he was always so kind to me. He was just such a kind man. So I said to him once, I said, "Coleman, you know, I think that you need 
you would do well with music that was more symphonic because you have such a beautiful voice and not just one or two instruments but something more symphonic and I have a lot of compositions that are orchestras of cellos you know like 20, 21 cellos playing at the same time and I think that some of my music would go go beautifully with your voice and he said wow okay let's do it so he came to my studio and we started and it just went down like Mad, no problem. You know, I would. He would say, "I'm going to read this poem," and and he would read a few lines, and then I had my library of compositions. I would pick one, and uh, I would play with it, but I would play the basic track with him. And every time I picked something, for some reason, it worked. I mean, we we didn't have to look at all, and uh, it just started. Uh, making itself. I mean, it was just amazing. We were both were quite amazed that it went down so easily. And uh, so that's how it began, and that's how we uh, created the beautiful CD that we put together. And this is a three-CD set, Just Being right. Here, Rumi and Human Friendship, and we're going to listen to the track Entering the Shell. Love is alive And someone born along by it Is more alive Than lions Roaring Or men In their fierce courage Bandits Ambush others on the road They get wealth but they stay in one place. Lovers keep moving, never the same, not for a second. What makes others grieve, they enjoy. When they look angry, don't believe their faces. It is spring lightning a joke before the rain. They chew thorns thoughtfully along with pasture grass, gazelle and lioness having dinner. Love is invisible except here in us. Sometimes I praise love. Sometimes love praises me. Love, a little shell somewhere on the ocean floor opens its mouth. You and I and we those imaginary beings enter that shell as a single sip of seawater. 
apparent shapes and meanings change. Creature hunts down creature. Bales get unloaded and weighed to determine price. None of any of this pertains to the unseen fire we call the beloved. That presence has no form and cannot be understood or measured. Take your hands away from your face. If a wall of dust moves across the plain, there is usually an army advancing under it. When you look for the friend, the friend is looking for you. Carried by a strong current, you and the others with you seem to be making decisions, but you are not. I weave coarse wool. I decide to talk less. But my actions cause nothing. A thorn grows next to the rose as its witness. I am that thorn for whom simply to be is an act of praise. Near the rose, no shame. A thorn grows next to the rose as its witness. I am that thorn for whom simply to be is an act of praise. Near the rose, no shame. Sometimes you enter the heart. Sometimes you are born from the soul. Sometimes you weep a song of separation. It is all the same glory. You live in beautiful forms and you are the energy that breaks form. <laughs> <laughs> 
all light, neither this nor that. Human beings go places on foot, angels with wings. Even if they find nothing but failure, you are the bright core of that. When angels and humans are free of feet and wings, they will understand that you are that lack, pure absence. You are in my eyes like a taste of wine that blocks my understanding. That ignorance glorifies. You talk and feel in the talking kingdom, finances, fire, smoke, the senses, incense, all are your favorites. A ship, Noah, blessings, luck. Troubles that pull us unknowingly toward treasure. Look, he is being dragged away from his friends. Nobody will see him anymore. This is your story. I ask you, should I talk to this one? Is he being drawn to me? Silence. That too. What is desire? What is it? Don't laugh, my soul. Show me the way through this desiring. All the world loves you, but you are nowhere to be found hidden and completely obvious. You are the soul. Boil me down in a saucepan. Then ask why I'm spilling out. Is it time for patience? Your bright being. My heart is a saucepan. This writing. The record of being torn apart in your fire as aloe's wood becomes most itself when burning up. Enough talk about burning. Everything. Even the end of this poem is a taste of your glory.
Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As fish out of water hear the waves. Or a hunting falcon hears the drums come back. This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. Children fill their shirts with rocks and carry them around. We are not children anymore. Read the book of your life, which has been given you. A voice comes to your soul, saying, lift your foot. Cross over. Move into the emptiness of question and answer and question. Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you as fish out of water hear the waves or a hunting falcon hears the drums come back come back This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. Children fill their shirts with rocks and carry them around. We are not children anymore. Read the book of your life, which has been given you. A voice comes to your soul saying, lift your foot, cross over. Move into the emptiness. Move into the emptiness question and answer and question David, before we got on the phone together, you mentioned to me that you're in the recording studio working on a new project. Here you are, David, and you're now 73 years old. 
And I'm curious to know, you're so prolific, so tremendously prolific. You keep releasing records year after year. What sustains you and keeps you interested in creating music at 73 years old? Well, uh, uh, the music, of course, is what it what keeps me engaged. It's so inspiring to to be involved with music. It keeps you young, and I I always feel that there's that I can do better, that I want to do better. I want to figure out uh, what's going to be next, and uh, and whether it will uh, create something that I haven't done before or that's you know, maybe that I can, well, just create uh, music that that really uh, satisfies me in, in my own what my own style. I mean, there are a lot of people who listen to my music, and they'll say to me, "Don't you ever write anything happy?" <laughs> and I say, "Well, I think my music is very happy. It's it's coming from a very uh, a, a place that." Uh, is trying to uh, to say to the world that we live in uh, there's no reason for war there's no reason to be negative we don't need poverty you know we have such a wealthy planet that that you know I just hope pray and work towards trying to get people to just uh, not not be prejudiced or and I feel like my music, I have that in my music. I mean, I, mean, I was so glad when I won the Grammy um, that I got a, had a chance to say to the audience that the, the, the record that I made was dedicated to Howard Zinn and to uh, Amy Goodman because I thought both of them were, were creating such wonderful information for the, for the world we're living in. And... You know, the history of the world, uh, I mean, that book just uh, just uh, inspired me so much because I, I finally found a book that told the truth, you know, and about the history of the United States and how it really went down rather than what uh, political people write in the history books. This, this was about people and what happened in little towns and... And I just couldn't believe that somebody finally wrote something like that. And actually, I was in Boulder at a time when my friend Mickey Houlihan, my producer, uh, I saw Howard Zinn on on his television one evening, and I just I said, "Wow, I got to get that book." And then the next day, Mickey came came into the studio we were at there in Boulder, and he said, "David, I just found out that." Howard Zinn's speaking at the college, at the university. And I said, oh, man. So I actually got to go that day, and we went to hear him speak. And it was sold out, and all of those wonderful people who care about the political scene in terms of of not, not being, uh, well, just much more liberal people and also people who want peace. And, you know, people who want to figure out how to feed the poor and help the poor and help educate everybody. 
and you know he gave a wonderful talk. I was so inspired by him, and so I got a chance to tell the audience that the the uh, my album was dedicated to Howard Zinn, and I was amazed that the audience all pl- applauded because you know he was well known among that that conscious audience, and uh, it was very. I was so glad. David, as we come to the end of our conversation, I want to end by letting our listeners hear a piece from an upcoming release. You've partnered with pianist Jacqueline Bouillon to release a record through Sounds True called Cello and Piano Meditations. It will be coming out early this summer. And you and Jacqueline are also playing together at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival, August 20th through the 24th in Estes Park. And to end our conversation, we're going to hear this song, The River at McNaughton, David Darling and Jacqueline Bouillon.
David Darling and Jacqueline Bouillon from a release coming out early this summer, Cello and Piano Meditations. They'll both be at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival, August 20th through the 24th in Estes Park, Colorado. David has also released with Sounds True a collaboration with Coleman Barks, a three-CD set, Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship, and a new CD with Sylvia Nakash called In Love and Longing. David, it's been great to have this chance to get to know you better and to hear you talk a little bit about your work and to understand a little bit more what it's like on the inside. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. It's a, a, I'm so happy that you were interested in my music. It's been a wonderful to work with your company. Thank you. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.